Our scripture reading this morning from God's Word is from Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and draw as with wine. They will be full, like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day, as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive, and the new wine the young women. Thank you, Nora. Well, good morning. I spoke recently to a woman friend who loves the Lord, has walked with the Lord a long time, and we talked about certain struggles she was having in her prayer life. She was saying that, you know, I'm committed to the Lord. I commit my time in the morning to Him. I spend time in the Word, and I'm committed to prayer, but what she experienced was a lot of frustration in her prayer life. What she described is she would pray for things, you know, concerns, people's health, certain things going on in people she loved and cared about, things in her own life, and it felt like God really wasn't interested. He didn't seem to answer her prayers. And so she was losing heart in her praying. Anybody identify with that? <laughs> I sure can, right? You know, you pray for thanks and you wonder, God, where, where are you in this? Why aren't you answering my prayer? You know the cry of my heart and the longing of what I long to see happen. You know, I've come to see more and more that the problem isn't so much with our prayers specifically, but it has much more to do with our view of God and what we want from Him. 
Let me just ask this, and I, I encourage you to just consider it in your own heart for a moment. What do you really want from God? What do you want God to do for you? Think about that for a moment. See, today we're looking at this passage in Zechariah because it's the passage that's quoted on Palm Sunday in the New Testament in the Gospels where Jesus came in riding on a donkey, and this passage describes that. And, but Zechariah itself was written in about 520 B.C. He was a prophet, and he was writing to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel had just come back from 70 years in captivity in Babylon. They were back in the land, but they were still under Persian and Mede oppression. They had no real power in themselves. They, they didn't really have a city to live in. The walls were broken down. They were in the process of rebuilding the temple, but the temple wasn't very impressive. It was a very difficult time in their lives. They were basically a poor, oppressed people with no power. What did they want from God? It's pretty clear that what they wanted was God to come in and throw out the oppressors, give them power so that they could make a life for themselves, that they could be in control, that they, their lives would be made better. Today's Palm Sunday, so jump ahead 500 and some years as we're celebrating Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on that day some 2,000 years ago. He came in as a donkey, and the people cheered, and they yelled, and they said, Hosanna, he saves. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, he's here. And what did they want from him? Well, clearly what they wanted is him to raise up an army, create a revolution, throw out the Roman oppressors. How do we know that? Well, because it was just a few days later that probably some of these same people were saying, crucify him. Why? Because he wasn't the God they wanted. But instead, he was the God they needed. And aren't we much the same? We want God to fix our circumstances. We want him to swoop in and take care of all these problems in our lives so that life will be better for us. We want him to reach out beyond us if you have a heart for what's going on in the world. And you want God to swoop in and destroy evil. Stop this madness that's going on in our world. Fix it, God. What we forget is that if God were to do that, to come in power and destroy all evil in this world, he would have to destroy us. Because the evil's out there, right? <laughs> but it's also in here. You see, God loves us too much to give us what we want. <laughs> Instead, he gives us the God we truly need. He comes instead as a God who gives us life as a gift, who comes riding on a donkey. But what he gives us that we need is far better than what we really want. So let's pray and we'll look at this passage together. Lord, we confess that we do get frustrated with you sometimes. You don't come through like we think you should. But Lord, we 
we confess that we just need a different view of you. We need to see you as you really are. We, we need to understand how much you love us and how you give us truly the God we need, not the God we want. So today, Lord, give us a fresh vision of who you are. Help us see you with fresh eyes that we might trust you more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is this God we need? Well, let's look at first who he is. Who is this God? It begins this way, this passage, as Nora just read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. Zechariah starts this out and says, hey, this is a time for celebration. I mean, this is a party. This is a coronation procession, a ceremony where the king is being enthroned among his people. And he is the true king who truly reigns over the whole earth. And he is truly, truly cause for celebration. He is the king our hearts have actually really longed for all our lives. But what is he like? It says, first of all, he is righteous. He is righteous. Now, again, that's a big theological, biblical word, but what does that mean? It means essentially he always does what's right. He always does what's right. His life and his thinking are in line with the very character of God. This means that we can know that whatever is happening in our lives, because he is king and he is sovereign, that he is doing what is right. He is doing what's best, and therefore we can trust him even when we don't understand. And his life is the standard for every one of us. What we long to become is like him in character. He's the plumb line, and so everything if you want to consider what's right, is measured by who Jesus is. But what this means is that means whatever happens in our lives, the things that come into our lives and the things that we get confused and frustrated about, we can always hang on to the fact that God is at work in it and he will do in the midst of that what is right. Now, I I realize sometimes, in fact, often he does things we don't understand. And we go, God, this didn't make sense. This doesn't seem right. But because he is right, we can trust him even when we don't understand. And often with hindsight, not always, but often with hindsight, we can look back and say, oh, that's what you were doing. My first ministry, I was a young pastor, and I... Things were going well, and suddenly everything blew apart, and I was confused, and I was hurting, and I was angry at God. God, I was doing what's right. What's, what's wrong? Why, why isn't this working out? I've prayed. I've sought your will. I've, I've tried to obey you, and it was hard, and it was difficult, and went through several years of real challenging times. It didn't make sense. Although now I can look back and see many ways in which God was using it. There were things that he was doing in my heart. He had far better things in mind than just being there for me, but also he was changing me and breaking down my self-dependence and my pride and those things that were getting in the way of me really trusting him. God always does what's right. He is righteous. Secondly, who he is, he's a suffering God. 
Now, if we're honest, we want a God, again, who's strong and powerful and who will swoop in and take care of all our problems, but he chooses to come as a suffering God. It's interesting how Zechariah puts it. He was righteous, and it says, and having salvation is he. Your translation may say endowed with salvation, but actually in the original language, in Hebrew, it says saved. In other words, he had to be saved. He went through such a terrible ordeal, as many commentators have mentioned. Jesus went through such a terrible ordeal that he had to be rescued. He had to be saved. Now, wait a minute. This is a God I'm going to trust in? And he has to be rescued? He has to be saved? He went through a terrible ordeal? Now, I don't think Zechariah knew what he was writing here, probably. He didn't understand exactly what Messiah would go through, what Jesus would go through. But we do, don't we? Because we get to look back and we know that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he had to be raised from the dead by his Father, rescued from the grave, rescued from death, raised to life for us. So he's a suffering God, having suffered an ordeal where he had to be saved, but he also was humble, it says. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. That word humble, again, is a difficult word to translate, and, and they've used that word humble, but most of the time that word is translated as afflicted, oppressed. It describes someone who the powers of the world has oppressed them and caused terrible suffering in their lives. They've been treated poorly. And the affliction is by those, again, in power. We think of refugees in our world today who are this Hebrew word, rani, suffering, afflicted, who in their own countries have been treated horribly and had to flee for their lives, and they try to find a country that will take them in where they can find refuge. Some do, but some don't get treated well, even by another country, and they experience terrible things. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus experienced terrible affliction. That's the kind of God, Zechariah says, has come. That's the kind of God we need. And Jesus was that kind of God. He had no home, no possessions, and he suffered and died for us. He was afflicted, we are told, for us. Now, Why did we need a God like that who would suffer for us when we wanted one who would come in power and fix everything? Why did we need a suffering God? Well, let me give you several reasons I believe Scripture teaches. Number one, he had to take our place on the cross. He had to suffer for us, for us to be forgiven and have relationship with God and have life. Otherwise, we would have had to experience that suffering. He had to come. Only God himself could die for the sins of the whole world. And he did. Another reason we needed a suffering God is so we could relate to him in our suffering as we go through the struggles and difficulties and temptations of life. Hebrews makes it clear that he suffered so that we could relate to him. He was tempted in every way as we are. And I don't know if you've ever meditated on that that he was tempted in every way. 
Whatever your most fierce temptations have been in your life, Jesus has experienced those exact same temptations, sexual temptations, temptations to pride and arrogance and unforgiveness and anger and all those things. Jesus has experienced the fullness of those temptations. Yes, he, hasn't, he never sinned, but he experienced the fullness of them even more than we do because we give in and he didn't. So we needed a God who would suffer so we could relate to him and know he understands. And as we suffer, he's there with us and understands everything we are going through. Third, we needed a God who suffered because we needed to understand his love and there's no greater love, no greater evidence of his love than the fact he came and suffered and died for us. He's a God of love who was willing to do that for you and me. And then fourth, we needed a suffering God because we needed to understand our own value to God because we struggle with who we are, right? And we know we're sinners and we know we're a mess, but if God himself would suffer and die for me, then I must be of incredible value. And every one of you in this room and every one in this world, Jesus chose to die for to show the incredible value you have in his eyes. And we would never know that value if he had not suffered in our place and for us. See, if God was strong and impenetrable and couldn't suffer, none of these things would be true. I like the way James Brian Smith describes this whole process of him coming for us and suffering for us. The incarnation is a statement of unconditional love. In the incarnation, we experience the solidarity of God with humanity. God could have used countless ways to save us, but instead, he chose to enter our world and, as C.S. Lewis wrote, die and rise again, bringing nature up with him. The incarnation is a proclamation of the value of human life. It's a wonderful picture for us. So we needed a God like this who was willing to suffer, to go through incredible pain on our behalf so we could know him and know his love. So what kind of God is he? He's righteous, but he's a suffering God. And what does he do when he comes? What... What is his plan? What does he do? Well, first of all, he brings peace. He brings peace. Starting again at the end of verse 9, he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace, shalom, to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. Now, I want, to pick, I want you to picture this. This is a picture of a battle, war against evil. We need this kind of Messiah, and how does he show up? He shows up on a donkey. You know, a donkey is no good in a battle. I mean, worse than no good. Far better to be on foot than be on a donkey because donkeys are stubborn. You can't get them where you want to go. And you're right in range to be hit by 
people who are on foot and you're going to be run over by the war horses that are everywhere. But that's the way our king chooses to come. Completely vulnerable in the fight. Completely vulnerable in the fight. And yet that's how he brings peace. He refuses all weapons. He refuses all violence, which the world uses. This is a king who will not use swords or armies or cluster bombs or nuclear warheads or fists or chains or prisons or any of those things that mankind uses to bring peace. Because he wants to bring a peace that is true peace, lasting peace, not my weapons are bigger than yours, so let's have peace. He brings peace that doesn't use any power or intimidation. He comes riding on a donkey. And then he brings peace, verse 11, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. How does he bring freedom? How does he bring peace? How does he set lives free? It says through the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. Not by violence, but by taking violence on himself. This phrase, blood of the covenant, is only used three times in Scripture. It's used in Exodus chapter 24 where Moses uses the blood to consecrate the people of Israel as he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice. Second time it's used is here. The only other time this approximate phrase is used is by Jesus in the upper room. As he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new arrangement for living, the new way God wants us to live is under the blood of Jesus. This king, this mighty warrior who is bringing peace, how does he do it? He suffers the violence on himself. Takes on the blood, becomes the blood of the covenant for us. So that he can bring true freedom and set prisoners free. Set us free from our own prisons of our own sin and selfishness that control us. And destroy us. In other words, Jesus came and made peace not by destroying enemies, but by being vulnerable himself, riding on a donkey, being the sacrifice for us, so we could be forgiven and have peace with God. And out of that begin to experience what it means to live together in peace with one another. That's how, according to the passage, he rules from sea to sea by offering peace to all the nations. And notice what it says. It doesn't say he enforces peace or he causes peace. It says he speaks peace to all the nations. Verse 10, he shall speak peace. How does he do that? He does that by offering himself and then offering the truth, offering life, offering the gospel, not forcing it, but offering it so that we can respond from our hearts and be set free, truly. So why do we need a God like this who brings peace in this way? Because again, a reminder, if he came in violence, in power, and destroyed evil, we would have to be destroyed as well. We would never get to experience life and forgiveness because we realize now as we see what kind of king he is that he comes 
not to just destroy evil, but to redeem us and bring us back into a relationship with him because he longs for relationship with us. He longs to know us and love us and have us love him in return. I'm reminded of the prodigal son parable that we all love of the father waiting as the rebellious son has gone off and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's watching and when the son comes, he sprints to cut off all the rejection of his whole community, to cut that off so that he can bring his son in and celebrate his return. That's the kind of God we have who is willing to suffer humiliation for us so that we could be in relationship with him and be restored to him. So what does he do? He brings peace. Secondly, this kind of king, the God we really need, does defeat evil. He brings shalom, but he also does defeat evil. But he does it his way. You know, if we're honest, we look around, there's a lot of evil in the world, right? It's a mess. Um, I can hardly watch the news anymore because it's just heart-wrenching to see the pain and the evil, and it seems like evil is winning too often. But notice these verses in verse 13 and following. For I, the Lord says, have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, will march forth. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour, tread down the sling stones, etc. He will defeat evil. In fact, he's doing it right now. But notice how he does it. (laughs) Who is his arrow? Who is his sword? His people. Us. The people of God. The way he's defeating evil now is through us. We are his arrows. Do you realize every one of you, God has taken and shot you right where he wants you in life? In your families, in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your communities. God has shot you there so that you can begin to drive back evil. You can push back the darkness right where you are. Some get called overseas, like Zach and Mel, and that's marvelous, and we get to support them and encourage them and pray for them. But all of us are placed, we are arrows shot right where we are. So how does God use us to defeat evil? How does he do that? Well, every time as you struggle with sin in your own life and you put that sin to death, you are defeating evil. And you are pushing back the darkness. Every time we use the spiritual weapons of truth and love in our relationships with one another, we are defeating evil and we are pushing back the darkness. Every time we speak up for the poor and the oppressed in our world and we step out to make a difference in their lives, we are defeating evil. And we are pushing back the darkness. When you forgive someone who has hurt you, and you don't want to forgive, but you choose to follow your king 
in suffering and forgive and let it go. You are defeating evil and you are pushing back the darkness. When you reach out in love to a hurting friend, you're defeating evil and pushing back the darkness. When you're speaking truth to someone who's believing the lies of the world and they're confused, whether they receive it or not, you are bringing light into that situation and you are defeating evil and pushing back the darkness. We could go on and on, but do you understand what God is doing? He doesn't do what we want, maybe, by coming in with his armies and destroying evil. Oh, eventually that will happen. We know that. But for now, how is he defeating evil? It's through us. In all those little choices we make to follow our king, to die to self, to be his children. He doesn't just waltz in and crush evil. He drives it back in us and through us so we get to be part of his greater purposes in the world. So what does he do? He defeats evil. He brings peace. He defeats evil. And he transforms his people. That's you and me. He transforms us. Verse 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall sparkle on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Again, sometimes in our prayers, I've certainly done this. I think most of us do at times. When things aren't going well or we're being mistreated, we want God to fix them. God, fix them, change them, make them better to fix our circumstances so we don't really have to change. Defeat evil out there. But how does God defeat evil? He transforms us. He defeats evil in us. He begins with us. He saves us, Zechariah says. Not from them out there, but from ourselves. He destroys evil in us. In us. I'm going to show you a picture. This is an uncut diamond. Not very pretty, is it? But that's kind of what we're like. And so what Zechariah says is, you know, God begins to work on us. He will save us, but how does he do that? He, he takes his chisel and he chips away at us and we, we don't like it. It hurts. But he keeps chiseling and he chisels a little more off and a little more off and he keeps chiseling because he knows that what's inside is what's important. It's like Michelangelo by legend was said that Apparently, he said he probably didn't, but still, it's a wonderful statement. And how did you make the David? Well, I just chip away everything that doesn't look like him. That's what God does with us. He just chips away everything that doesn't look like him until he finally makes us look like this, something that can reflect the light of his glory to the world around us so that people look at us and I love the way Zechariah puts it here. He says, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Now, your translation may be a little different. They may say their beauty, their... 
I think it's ambiguous for a reason because I think ultimately what it's saying is that when God chips away at us and makes us sparkling gems, what's evident then is his goodness and his beauty in us, through us. He becomes visible in us and we reflect his light and his life and truth to the world around us. He chips away everything that doesn't look like him so that he can be seen in us. And God's beauty is everywhere. It's around us, but he wants it especially to be seen in us. Some of you have heard this story. The world is looking for beauty. And I was working firefighting for the BLM, and we happened to be on a fencing project. There weren't any fires going on at the time, so we're staying up in Steens Mountain up on eastern Oregon, and we're camped out there, and we've been working all day, and that evening we said, let's go to Kiger Gorge Lookout, which is one of my favorite places in the world. I grew up around there, and it's a beautiful place. Anyway, we went up there, gorgeous lookout. The sun's just starting to set, and the colors were fabulous. There's a little cloud floating through, reflecting the colors of those clouds. And let me just set the stage for you. I was with seven other guys, all of which were avowed atheists and had been mocking me the entire week we were staying there for being a Christian. How foolish that I could believe in God. So we're there, we're watching this beautiful thing, and all of a sudden this whole herd of deer comes bouncing. And so you're seeing this whole scenery, and literally... Honestly, these seven guys started jumping around saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. This, I can't believe it. And they were jumping and saying, thank you, God. And then it, the moment passed and they're like, what did we just say? <laughs> but you know what's in the heart of everyone? When they see beauty, the beauty reflects who God is. And even out of the mouths of avowed atheists, they could not not praise. They had to praise. So when you and I begin to reflect beauty, when we reflect his goodness, not because we've got it all together, we're, but, we, but he's changing us into his likeness, and, and we were begin to reflect who he is in his character like a gem that simply reflects the light. God is glorified. He makes us good and beautiful so that he can be seen. Like Israel in 520 B.C. and in New Testament days and most all of us throughout all history, we tend to want a God who will come in mighty power and fix our circumstances, who will make it all better, destroy evil, but let us kind of be as we are. But the God we need, the God who came, Jesus, is one who comes in weakness, who suffers for us, who comes riding on a donkey. So true peace can come, and lives can be transformed, and the prisoners can be set free. So that you and I get to be part of defeating evil in this world and driving back the darkness around us. You see, God is too good a parent who loves us too much to let us run out in the street or have dessert before dinner or whatever it is. He, He knows what we need. 
So because we don't know what we need and what we want is not what's good for us, he gives us what we need because he's such a good parent who loves us too much, too much to be the God we want. Instead, he's the suffering, loving, present, transforming God we need. So, like the woman I talked to at the beginning who is struggling with her prayer life, maybe if you understand God in this way, that he is this kind of God, then maybe our prayers, it's okay to pray for circumstances. I get that. As long as we release it to the Lord, Lord, you do what's best. But maybe our prayers will change from God fix this to God use me. God change me. God use me. God change me. I just want to close. I I think it's a beautiful song by Chris Rice. It's actually a Christmas song, but I think it reflects some of the beauty of this incarnation, the beauty of who Jesus came to be for us. He writes this. It's the song, Welcome to Our World. He says, Bring your peace into our violence. Bid our hungry souls be filled. Word, now breaking heaven's silence, welcome to our world. Fragile finger sent to heal us. I love that picture, just a fragile finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us unto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you. Breathe our air and walk our sod. Rob our sins and make us holy. Perfect Son of God, welcome, welcome to our world. Can we welcome the God we need into our lives and follow him? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you love us far too much to give us what we want because we tend to just want comfort and ease and we want life to go better for us. But thank you that you are the God we need, the one who came to bring true peace, the one who's truly righteous, the one who is willing to suffer for us so that we could, as prisoners, be set free and we could experience life in you. And be used of you to drive back the darkness. Lord, use us. May you drive back the darkness in us. May you transform us. May you chip away everything that's not you. So that your goodness and your beauty can be seen in us. Thank you for being the God that we need. Amen.